Freethinkers, and welcome back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. Our guest this week is someone who's played an integral part of my own philosophical foundation and was a huge inspiration for my police accountability work. Our guest this week is godfather of the modern libertarian police accountability movement, Pete Ayer. So, some of our longtime followers are probably familiar with Pete or at least the organization he helped found back in 2010 called Coplock. Pete not only embraces the tenets of libertarian anarchism, but also has dedicated his life to align his lifestyle in accordance to those principles. Pete isn't necessarily a huge name or a celebritarian within the movement, and intentionally so, I might add, but his dedication to liberty and the various different projects he's taken on over the years has really cemented his name as a doer, a leader, and an organizer. Now, during this conversation, we talked about Pete's new organization and podcast called Duty to Protect and its focus and goals, along with other philosophical and practical knowledge relating to our combined years of experience in the police accountability world. We also talked about solutions, the power of the individual, and the way forward for the police accountability movement. Hey, Pete. Thanks for joining us on the Free Thought Project podcast. So we've been longtime colleagues in this space now. I think we connected back in like, what, 2014 or 2015, when the organization you co-founded, Coplock, and our organization, Police the Police, networked to grow our audience, uh, increase our reach, and share important police accountability information, largely on Facebook. And back in those days, you know, which the censorship was virtually non-existent, so we could use these mainstream platforms to reach millions of people as we did. And, you know, we were very successful at it. But of course, our information overlords couldn't allow that. And within a few years, our pages and reach had kind of dried up. So since then, you've expanded your work and your activism. For a few years, you were in the crypto space, working with Dash, among other crypto entities. But more recently, you started a new podcast called Duty to Protect. And I'd love to get into your specific focus and intentions for your podcasts. And of course, you were gracious enough to have me on two weeks ago. But could you give a brief overview of what Duty to Protect is all about? Yes, certainly, Jason. And and uh, thanks, firstly, to you and Matt for uh, inviting me on the Free Thought Project podcast. You guys are continuing to, to do uh, top-tier work for many years, and I uh, appreciate your efforts um, but to, to answer your question, uh, I'd be happy to go into um, more detail about Duty to Protect. But uh, generally, it's uh, as you noted, it's uh, primarily a podcast at this moment. I did snag the .NET extension, so Duty to Protect.net, with an aim to potentially one day uh, grow it to be more on the ground with collaborative efforts. It was one thing that I did uh, really like about my involvement with Coplock back in the day, just seeing all the different groups and people 
connecting in the real world and the impact that had. But the perhaps an easy way to maybe digest what Duty to Protect is about is just to hear the tagline, which is each of us can be a hero. Um, and so that kind of just to unpack that a little bit, each of us that obviously speaks to the individual. So the project focuses on the individual, on empowering the individual and uh, can be uh, that that kind of just um, the the choice that one has if, if one uh, has the mentality and, and, and definitely the mentality, but also the skills um, to be a hero, to kind of come to someone's aid, often at risk to themselves. And so the aim of duty to protect is to encourage individuals to take responsibility for their own safety and security. Uh, I know I'm not trying to say everyone needs to be like a huge badass or anything. That's not it at all. It's mostly um, about one's mentality. Uh, the logo for duty to protect is a pyramid, which has three horizontal slices, if you think about it that way. So the bottom slice is the biggest, that's the foundation. And so duty to protect has three steps with the foundation being prepared. So that's your mindset, that's seeing through conditioning. Um, and I, I'll get, I'm happy to go into more detail about this, but the first step is prepare. The second step is peacekeep. That's out in the streets, like just having street smarts and situational awareness and trying to de-escalate and maximize harmony. And then the third step is protect. So that's um, being able to, if, if you're unable to escape or de-escalate, um, to know how to protect yourself or others, whether they be your friends and family or just strangers on the street. So duty to protect um, is, it kind of took a cue from, uh, probably a lot of listeners are familiar with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and where he outlines like uh, a number, I think maybe seven different needs. And, and I, in that, in that iteration that he outlined, he puts uh, safety or security in the second level after physiological needs like food and water uh, and shelter. But I would argue that safety is even more important than those needs that he put at first, because, you know, one can go, days without food one can go hours or days without water but one can't go sometimes one second of not being safe can be fatal so i think having a mindset to uh, be aware of your surroundings it, it also really comes down to like living in the moment and to not not being you know to make sure you're not just oblivious to what's going on around you but to be appreciative of everything and to be not just doing no harm, which is a good first step, but to be proactively trying to add value to the world around you. And so that's what duty to protect in a nutshell, again, prepare, peacekeep and protect is about at this moment. Dude, I love it. And the name is perfect, especially if we like, if we look back into some of these older SCOTUS rulings, like the Supreme Court rulings, which uh, ruled several times that, that you know, we, we saw it in Parkland shooting and most recently the Uvalde shooting, that cops have no duty to protect air quotes, you know, and it, I mean, it, it literally says this in Warren v. District Columbia, where it says that government and its agents are under no general duty to provide public services such as police protection to any individual uh, citizen. Um, did did that have anything to do with the name or was it just like, is this just coincidental or what? Yeah, definitely, Matt. I, I did chew on a lot of different names and this one did stand out to me eventually because, as you noted, uh, legal land, these folks in black robes have ruled that their colleagues in the policing apparatus have no duty to protect the individual. And, you know, even, and 
and you mentioned some legal land cases. I mean, even like Joe Lazito's inc incident in New York where police employees recognized, hey, this is this here's a here's a known killer who stabbed a number of people over the past half day, but we're gonna remain out of you know in the safe spot while we watch um, this killer attack us someone in the subway car in this case joe lozito and joe lozito took it upon himself to 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 push back. and only after this uh, killer was was held down did the police employees come out and so th that's just the latest iteration of uh legal land actors saying that police have no duty to protect but um but yeah to answer your question it did it, it instead of uh like police and you know they they swear an oath and they swear an oath to uh, uphold legalese or some some concepts that might you know have a lot of uh, idealism and we might agree with a lot of them like justice and things like that but at the end of the day as you said police are said not to have a duty to protect the individual so uh, this project duty to protect encourages individuals to self-obligate to look inward to to um, see through all the conditioning to see that, hey, I don't need to operate from a place of fear and division and view everyone as an other and a potential threat. Instead, my default is to is to act with will and love and and look to learn something from everyone and to try to add value and to realize that everyone has you know, everyone has been thrown a different life experience. Some people may have just had a bad day. They may just um, need need a hand or you know just like a nod. Just acknowledge someone can go a long way and so so duty to protect's use of that phrase is a i've i've kind of my own internal compass i don't need to rely on quote-unquote experts or quote-unquote authorities i'm gonna i have a duty be, because i i feel i'm connected to to my brothers and sisters that i see and i therefore am taking it upon myself i'm i'm uh to to protect when possible yeah i'm, I'm so happy that you uh brought up that example of Joe Lazito, uh, that, that's a bit of an older story, but it is one that really highlights the lack of concern and staying within the fray of your legal obligations rather than your moral obligations. That's 100% a real story. I think Pete completely nailed the details. In fact, anybody who's interested in hearing more about that story, I believe Luke Radowski actually interviewed Joe with his We Are Change uh, channel. So check that out on YouTube. Now, Duty to protect isn't very old, right? It's only maybe about two months old, maybe even a little less. And um, you've done some interviews. One facet about it that I really like, Pete, is that you're actually taking the time to highlight positive stories, stories about people helping each other, uh, coming to the rescue, coming to aid. I, I think that's something that's very significant. And of course, with the, the current uh, news paradigm. It's not something we see a lot of, you know, unfortunately, we always get caught up in more of the negative stories. And perhaps, you know, us at the Free Thought Project are uh, a little guilty of that as well, only because you have to shine the light on some of these negative incidents to really, you know, make positive change. And of course, we we try to also implement solutions-oriented articles into the mix as well. As you guys have both kind of mentioned now, law enforcement has been ruled numerous times that they have no duty to protect the public. So yeah, as Matt said, it seems like, you know, if anything, like now is the most important time to really help individuals develop a mindset to peacekeep and protect, which is, you know, part of the mission statement associated to your, your new project. So this 
approach seems even more decentralized than your previous organization, which was also decentralized with Coplock. But now this is being applied to more of an individual level rather than a group of decentralized organizations kind of sharing the same goal. So some say that there is power in numbers, but like what made you really distill these concepts down to a more individual responsibility and focus rather than a collectively shared objective? I guess, as you noted, some of the previous projects I'd been involved in, and, and again, I already noted the um, impact that, that I saw from when people connected on the ground in these groups. It does provide um, it does provide strength. It encourages one to, to stand up for what they know is right to, to, when they realize that there's, they have people in their corner to look out for them. And um, I guess I... I guess I just saw, you know, at the end of the day, it is individuals who act. Uh, we can talk about the state, but what is the state but individuals? And we could talk about this, you know, perceived tyrant. But what can one person do but but with uh, order followers and people, um, you know, uh, just obeying? And, I, you know, I might I might in yesteryear have said these folks are unthinkingly obeying. But, but at the end of the day, everyone is responsible for their actions and so i do think focusing on the on the individual is where the most bang for the buck can be uh in each person could you know influence those in their sphere um i, I did feel eventually with with my previous endeavors with say cop lock um that event i did feel it was good to get some strike the root messages out and help to connect people but i i started to feel a bit reactive in that we were you know we would just kind of respond hey this this potent this person with a badge you know acted in a brutal way that that anyone with common sense would say would be wrong or illicit if you or i had done it so um i did i did uh, decide to step back and i thought a lot about you know incentives and motivations and institutions and different structures and scales and and just the thing and so what i'm trying to do with duty to protect is just to try to cut through that conditioning. And as you noted, Jason, some of the content on the podcast thus far, it has been, now I've been putting content out for three months. We just posted our 12th video. And so every other piece of content is called Good Samaritan Stories. And so that just gives a recap of maybe eight to 12 different instances in recent weeks that have happened where individuals have come to the aid of someone else. And I, and I want to do that to both give those people props for taking that step, but also to encourage the listener to realize that they they have the capacity also to be a hero. So there's so much conditioning these days, again, like to defer to quote unquote authorities and uh, call something, call someone if you see something, but, but really like who better to, you know, stop a violent interaction than the person there at the, at the moment. So I want to try to speak to the individual um, and encourage them to, you know, really shed that conditioning that we've all been, uh, that's been subsumed, that's been, that we've been immersed in, realize just the depth of the conditioning and then, and then come out of that, like a stronger, more self-confident person who's, who's willing to act when others might just be bystanders. Because, you know, like we saw in the, uh, in the Milgram experiment, a lot of people in these, in these tests, like shocked uh, people to potentially lethal levels because they were, told by someone in a white coat to do so but but the flip side of that was when when a person stopped then they incur that influenced other people to stop and so that we have a a um a very powerful act 
you know, in a moment an individual can have and, and also to inspire others. So yeah, the focus on the individual again is, is that's just where it is individuals who act. Part of that maybe can stem all the way back to just being exposed to Austrian economics back in the day. And, and really, you know, rather than looking at metadata and GDP and all these like nation state figures, which just kind of keep people ascribed by their political boundaries, uh, really just looking instead at the individual actor and, and uh, you know, trying to try to motivate and encourage people to uh, be, be not um, a, a player, but an actor to be not sub, uh, to be not, you know, someone who's preyed upon, but someone who's in, present in the moment and who's able to affect a positive change. Man, it's awesome that you cover the uh, Good Samaritan videos like that. I actually uh, tweeted one out yesterday. Um, it took place in Buffalo, New York. Some guy was like some crazy dude was running into a substance abuse clinic and he had an AR-15 and he just started shooting, dude. And there was an unarmed security guard in there. And I mean, you could watch like his fight or flight kick in. He tried to jump over the counter to get out of the way, but that wasn't an option. And he just turned towards that guy with the AR-15 dude who could have just smoked him. But because he, you know, he had the courage in that moment, he jumped on and he saved countless people's lives, dude. I mean, mm -hmm. you could see in the video behind the door, there was all kinds of people in that place that were just, just cowering in fear that we're about to get smoked. And uh, anyway, that might be a... Uh, a good series or a good a good part for your series a good video for your series to cover it uh it shows like you know everybody knows the world saw all those armed agents of the state sitting in the hallways in uvalde high schools with behind bulletproof shields and wearing you know all full body armor helmets and they were armed with ar-15s and they all just stood there as one single person with an ar-15 you know slaughtered dozens of people inside and here we have this one individual who doesn't even have a gun, body armor, or anything else, and he's able to go and stop the same potential threat that that the the officers and in Uvalde had. It's uh, it's inspiring to see that, but also infuriating on the same token that we're forced to pay for this other service that you know where people had all the gear, had everything to be able to go against some potential threat like that, and then chose not to act. It's fucking, it's maddening, man, <laughs> which is why we do what we do, right? That's right. Yeah. What a great example. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I actually tweeted it out on my Twitter. If you want to go uh, check it out and maybe cover it. It's a, I don't even know the guy's name. Like they didn't even put his name out there or, or anything. He was just a dude in Buffalo that saved dozens of lives. This guy had already shot a lady before, you know, like right, right outside. <clears throat> But uh, yeah, he he stopped him, and then once he got him on the ground, some other guys got some courage and they jumped out there and yeah. and uh, and got on him. <laughs> nice, it's great to hear. Yeah, so I I really liked uh, your response there, Pete. I mean, it, I think it's the difference between being proactive and reactive, and I think a lot of uh, what we do in the activism sphere a lot of times uh, happens to be more of a reactive type of movement, you know? And so I, I like this idea of trying to get ahead of potential threats or, you know, anything that could be harmful. And I think a lot of it too, is I think you're trying to more or less say is just changing your mindset, changing the lens that you're, you're looking at life from. And in that moment and being in the moment, you could be potentially helpful or a hero to somebody else. And uh, not only that, I think it, as you had mentioned, it, it's empowering, right? Because we're not 
feeling like victims. We're actually feeling like we're being proactive to take steps to make some significant change to prepare and to uh, do what we believe is in the best interest for our lives. So maybe to do better help our audience understand your you and your history and your expertise when it comes to police accountability. I know we had kind of talked about the individualist route, um, but can you share some experiences uh, that you had going to school for law enforcement? I know you did some internships as well and the time that you spent doing ride-alongs. I know eventually you chose to exit that career path and move towards basically the complete opposite approach, which was co-founding CopLock and your police accountability work. But why do you believe the concept of changing the system from the inside is just not feasible? Yeah, it's a good question, Jason. And and before I answer that, I'll, I'll just state my complete agreement with you about this is definitely a, about a paradigm shift and about, you know, if one if one goes around viewing themselves as a victim or as being oppressed, then, you know, it's a much different uh, way they conduct themselves and they and the power that they think they have can affect to affect change in their own sphere. So, yeah, that's definitely something that you hit the nail on the head about. Um, but to answer your question, uh, why do I think focusing on the, the individual this direction rather than trying to reform an institution? I mean, it, it, it essentially it comes down to incentives. And if and if you and if you strike the root, like the rose said, you know, a thousand the branches to the one striking the root. Um, and you realize what the incentives are, like these institutions, the police apparatus or such and such bureaucrat who swears to uphold this piece of paper, you know, that no one, none of us alive today have signed and things like that. Like they might sound good on their face, but when you, when you strike the root, when you, when you peel back the layers and you realize like all these institutions um, that, that were on in that sphere are at their base, like founded on force there there uh, it's a it's a perverse incentive it's a double standard so these institutions even yes. even with like lofty goals that a lot of us would agree with they're unable to achieve that or affect it because their incentive instead is to grow in size and scope at the direct inverse relationship to individual rights and so you know if there's no crime then they manufacture it they pass more legalese and say more actions are illicit and things like that and so um my own my own uh, background in this i mean a, a bit of a path i guess i'd say i, I uh, like to read a lot and i you know i used to read a lot of military history and then i kind of saw the pattern and when you recognize patterns and you could there's some truth to that you can distill from it and so the pattern is is these empires they grow in, they grow in size and scope and then they you know become um, very militaristic usually like especially abroad and then it comes home and then they they become fragile and even more oppressive and so it's just it's just uh, inherent in the way these things these institutions are structured and so you know i do think economics is a very powerful lens to apply to understand the world around one and i think it you know it's um there's so much conditioning again since like i know you y'all did a great interview with with uh, dana martin and jason when you were on duty to protect you also went into some detail about um you know how a child is raised or how the guardians are involved with their life or not and and yeah from that and to, to schools and and uh you know just just the media and all these different institutions they just a lot of them again are, are not necessarily the parents but these other institutions mentioned are you know they're founded on force they're founded on um trying to encourage people to conform so that they're 
more controllable to achieve the aims of you know the regime essentially and so um, that's that's what the technocrats are all about they just want to say hey we're, we have the smarts to better manage humanity but at the end of the day i mean they don't have the tacit knowledge they don't know people's preferences and, and again they suffer from perverse incentives so it's not something that could ever be remedied i mean perhaps you can lessen its its negative impact but um i i would much rather focus on just creating like parallel institutions as you know your guest sal the agorist went into and, and others of that ilk just um you know just trying to just trying to ignore those folks as much as possible have as little to do with those regimes uh, as possible be more gray man just uh, kind of blend in and and uh you know but but be radical and and affect change um you know one person at a time yeah great answer and i i think you know i I probably could have uh, assumed most of that as being your position, but I, I think that question was probably geared towards more of the people who have that that type of mentality. Well, why don't you do something to change the system from inside? You know, so as somebody who has spent a little bit of time in that world, I just kind of want to get your take on it. And just one more question about you know the police accountability world, and maybe we can move on. But I know that was a big part of your life, and it still you know is probably as well as as ours. Um, but I know you left that space after years of being involved in the work and you felt like you kind of needed to transcend out of it, which we kind of spoke about, but as like a very broad question, like what do you think the best path forward for the police accountability movement could be? I know we didn't see a lot of real significant change after the George Floyd protests, even though there were global, uh, global protests, maybe the biggest police brutality, police violence protests that we've ever seen on a global scale. And, um, you know, since the years and since the summer of 2020, we really haven't seen any significant uh, change through incremental reform legislation. In fact, some of them even got rolled back. Uh, it felt like that was uh, largely a way to kind of quell the outrage and unrest. So, yeah, what do you think the best path forward for the police accountability movement could be? Yeah, and that's, uh, that's a great question, Jason. I would... Um... I, I will note that uh, I, w I have noticed a change, like a shift among, I would say, police employees that I've interacted with through the years. And uh, I know in a previous episode that y'all recorded, just knowing the impact that cameras have had and the, and the greater transparency and live streaming and stuff like that is, uh, is has been effective. And I'm glad for that. Uh, I, I when last year when I was living in New Hampshire again, I spent a lot of time there as part of the Free State Project. Um, I participated in the, the largest town there, New Hampshire is called Manchester, and uh, they have a twice annual, they call it a civilian police academy, and I don't like that word civilian because it denotes an allegiance to the regime, but anyway, it was a one night a week for eight weeks, and I thought, hey, I'll go to this and like see what I could learn, kind of some, uh, you know, hear about their practices in-house and stuff like that, and and uh, every, every um, so that each each week they'd have a different a person from a different department speak to the group, at least one or maybe two people. And pretty much every one of them for the whole course mentioned the difficulty in hiring new uh, police employees, that uh, that applicants were down. And to me, that was a, and, and I've seen this elsewhere. And this, to me, this is a direct result of the negative public mm -hmm. perception. The court of public opinion mm -hmm. does matter. And so the, the fact that people are documenting these instances of police brutality I mean, it's unfortunate that that they have that they continue to happen and they happen to more and more people. But but ideally, through like video and word of mouth, 
people don't have to experience this firsthand. They can see it vicariously and they can know, hey, I, this is something I don't want to support. I don't want to rely on. So to, to better address your question of like how to reduce that or how, where to go from here, I mean, one, um, try not to rely on that apparatus to the, as much as you can, like uh, don't involve, I mean, it's probably common sense for most listeners of a free thought project that if you call the police, they may show up and, you know, shoot you or someone else or just harass you in the least. So uh, try not to involve them. Try to try to um, instead, again, cultivate your own abilities uh, to address situations. Um, I also think it's very I don't think it's a lost cause to reach out to current police employees directly. And I know there's some people that are um, that are very good at this. Uh, a gentleman who had used one of the first uh, folks I, that I knew of who was uh, demonetized by YouTube was his channel name was Storm Clouds Gathering. And he had a great two or three minute video called uh, The Chain of Obedience. And so he essentially and, and some other ones. And, and so that kind of a mindset, uh, which he puts forth is saying, hey, again, it's not just like this single person who's responsible for all these ills. It's 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 people obeying and thinking that they're not responsible because someone else ordered them to do so. So I, I do think there's a space to reach out to current police employees. And again, this is this isn't going to happen at a protest where everyone's assumed a role like the police have assumed a role of. I'm going to get mil geared up and militarized and, and, you know, protect this building or protect this person, whatever it is. And whereas the folks on the street might say, Hey, we're out here like angry that our rights have been violated or about some specific act or whatever. And so everybody in those situations is in a role and there's not really a good opportunity. It's not a good forum to have a, a fruitful exchange of ideas. And so, um, years ago, uh, when I was in Keene, New Hampshire, I was went to Legal Land. I went to a courtroom to support a friend, and uh, it was winter out. It was cold, and I had just stepped into this room, and I had a, a hat on, and uh, and so the bailiff, this guy who works there, just said, "Hey, take your hat off." And I'm like, "Dude, it's cold. It's fine. Like, whatever, you know." And then, and then moments later, a person with a badge just tackled me. I was sitting in a chair. He just tackles me and him and his colleague carry me out and they put me in a cage and, you know, yada. It was just, it was just silly. It was just ridiculous. But um, I, I later ended up like meeting this police employee who, who had tackled me, who I thought was like pretty aggressive unnecessarily that day. And uh, we met for coffee one time. And then another time we met, we went to a shooting range. And so I'm not, I don't pretend to say like, I totally changed him or he totally changed me. But we had a we had a, a exchanges in like a more of a civil way that I think helped to personalize each other. And, you know, he's one of the many police employees that I've talked to through the years who have who have like proactively um, offered up the fact that they would not say take firearms away from Americans if they're ordered to, for example. So that that gives me like, OK, there's some common ground. We can agree on this. Um, but. <clears throat> But again, um, other other solutions, other ways, I think just as, as people stop relying on this institution, as they look to each other, you know, um, there used to be a great app, Cell 411, that Virgil Vaduva had developed that worked pretty well. It's kind of in a state of flux now. And before that, there was another app called Peacekeeper, which Cody Drummond from San Jose had spearheaded. And it was a great concept. And he emphasized like, looking out for people in your neighborhood in your time of need and in the off time kind of training together and getting to know each other. 
And these are great things. And though that app never really like hit the hit the ground running, um, <clears throat> I think you know maybe we'll see some other other iterations of that, or we can just you know use existing tools like a signal or something else to coordinate amongst people in our sphere to to you know provide safety and uh, in times of need look out for each other. But uh, yeah, the less we can rely on these existing institutions and make them irrelevant, then as like uh, Etienne de la Boite said, you know, like the, the, the statue, the tyrant falls under their own uh, weight. There's no one there to support them. You're not giving them your energy. Instead, you're using your energy for productive um, purposes. That's incredible. You brought up Peacekeeper, man. I was about to follow up with a question about that as a possible solution. I think it was uh, Cody Drummond was a little bit before his time with that, man. Like that's when that's when mm -hmm. Facebook and uh, like kind of held the monopoly on attention when it came to social media. And this app was kind of kind of fun where you could interact with your neighbors and you could build friendship and like a voluntary network of friends. And and then they protected each other, you know, <laughs> like it had all these amazing qualities to it. <clears throat> And then it just kind of fizzled out, which kind of which which sucked, man. But uh, do you think that like that that we could like find a oh and uh, sorry, I didn't want to before I get to that question, I wanted to go back to that conversation you said you had with the guy who tackled and arrested you, man. That's incredible. And that just speaks to the the power that peaceful discourse has, you know, and and you could I, you could go sit down with anybody and you're gonna find some things in common and 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 that's what leads to to understanding and progress and and less aggression. Uh, and that's why I do believe that the powers that be want to prevent that at all costs. And uh, because peaceful discourse does lead to you know less aggression, they, <laughs> then you can't you can't. It's harder to manipulate people when they are less aggressive. You know to carry out your own interests, but. Uh, mm -hmm. the question was, uh, you know, like, do you think that there's, that we could use like some of these institutions, like not, not get on these platforms like Facebook and Twitter and other things like that. But do you think that there could be another type of peacekeeper that comes forward and, uh, you know, gets built up and, and perhaps incites some positive change and allows people to build these networks and, and protection, um, you know, like these protection circles, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you know, I hope so. And I, if there's a market demand, then it'll happen. And the cell phone one app that I mentioned, it did function for a bit, but uh, pretty well. But I think they just kind of overcomplicated it. And and maybe a couple of years ago, Ian Freeman, who does Free Talk Live, he bought that app and the code from the original developer. And so he has a few people around him who are more tech savvy, trying to uh, clean up the code and rewrite some stuff so it's more privacy oriented. So whether that comes out and functions well and is a solution in this vein or not is to be seen. But uh, there's certainly tools now that can be used for, you know, to accommodate some of this. And uh, again, like a signal group or some people like Telegram or whatever. The Freedom Cell Network. <laughs> yeah, Freedom Cells, sure. Yeah, and I, I guess I did want to add one thing to the previous to Jason's previous question about like how do we how do we lessen sort of the police uh, brutalities sort of how do we get away from it and um, and it may be kind of a you guys may be surprised maybe to hear me talk about this but I do think it should be included in the conversation and um, some years ago I went to as part of a police accountability tour went to South Africa at, for six weeks and uh, we one of the people we talked to there was uh they call him the warden they're essentially like a correctional officer and this gentleman was very candid he told us that 
the reason he took his job that he strove to get that job was because his father worked in a prison and his father eventually, um, I don't know the circumstances, was killed by a prisoner or some prisoners. So he, this gentleman we talked to, wanted to be in that same setting so that he could essentially exact revenge on prisoners just ad hoc. And so he's telling us this, and then he tells us that, well, I wasn't alone in this. My colleagues were also very, you know, brutal, and, and uh, you know, we took pleasure in, you know, not being good people, essentially, until what happened, uh, friends of these prisoners who were not in a cage, who were on the outside, started visiting these correctional employees at their houses, knocking on the door, when the door opens, that's it, they're gone. And so I just, I do think that individuals who repeatedly have demonstrated that they have no moral compass or that they're so conditioned that they're, they have established a pattern, um, then I do think that there may be space for that. I'm not saying anyone who wears a particular outfit is, this should happen to, but for example, there's, you know, an individual, I forget the term y'all use, but for a police employee who's like, who quietly resigns or who's canned from a gypsy cop gypsy cop yes so for example there's a gypsy cop who's been at oakland police outfit and he's killed three people and then he leaves and he goes and gets a job somewhere else and he kills two more people things like that if there's if there's folks who have repeatedly demonstrated that they're just bad they're just thugs and and as i think one of the most popular videos i ever made when i was involved with cop lock was i asked larkin rose to narrate an essay that he had written called when you should you shoot a cop and he, he did that. And I just, you know, dressed it up a little bit. And that was, you know, it's, it's it maybe a, um, yes. a touchy subject and people might be shocked at such a, an idea, but the conclusion that Larkin gave, and which I think is at least for me accurate is, you know, at the same time you would do that to someone else who's not a police employee. You know, it's, they don't, if Coplock's tagline was badges, don't grant extra rights. And if we truly believe that and act that way, then or if we truly believe that we need to, you know, we need to push back sometimes. And so I did have this thought experiment, you know, um, cop watch was essentially like the first, um, organized uh, people were filming police and, you know, rights violations, but cop watch really like was the first on the scene out of Berkeley and, and then some other area, Rodney King incident really helped, you know, uh, galvanize some people and, and cop watch, uh, you know, I would say they're a bit more passive in their, interactions with police and that they just sort of document from afar generally, and then they'll approach the person who was harassed and offer them the video footage or offer to help them in some way. But generally they're a bit more hands off. Whereas the next iteration I would say would be cop block or where it's more like, Hey, you know, you're, you know, there may be a risk, but you may go up and you may question the police employees actions. You may point out the double standards and you may get kidnapped and caged just, you know, because they want to retaliate even though you have done nothing wrong. But the next iteration, so past that, you know, and to continue with this rhyme, cop watch, cop lock, I would think would be cop stop. And so the stop would be multifaceted. It would be you individually realizing that, um, that these, these institution is, you know, based on perverse incentives, they have no duty to protect as we've already talked about. And so I'm going to stop any allegiance I have to them. I'm not going to rely on them at all. I'm going to withdraw my support and I'm instead going to try to cultivate my own abilities and mindset to protect myself and people around me. 
And also cop stop could be what we see some black block folks do where they unarrest. So if someone's being targeted on the street and for, you know, something that, that, uh, you know, didn't cause any victim, didn't cause any harm. They're just, you know, police employees going mad and they're just kidnapping, trying to kidnap and cage people. They'll do unarrest. So they'll just kind of like maybe just hurl their bodies at this police employee and just create a little bit of chaos so that people can all get away. And sir, it's risky, but it's a way to cop stop. But also a third uh, piece of this cop stop could be the thing, the what I just had mentioned before about the the uh, example in Cape Town, South Africa, where people actually push back against the individuals who have shown that they're bad actors. And I do think, I mean, th this does kind of speak to sort of, and it's not something I, I advocate, like propaganda of the deed. Anarchism, you know, I would say was more as in terms of numbers or self-identifiers, um, you know, this was a uh, tactic that was used in like 1890s and 1910, I would say was the, the busiest time of this activity um, where, you know, over three dozen heads of state and things like that were, were taken out essentially. But so I'm not saying that is, uh, I'm not, I'm not advocating that necessarily, but I'm just saying that it's, it is a tool that I don't think should be overlooked. And if a person um, reads, for example, uh, a book by John Ross called Unintended Consequences. I kind of, I kind of say it's like the uh, gun culture's kind of Atlas Shrugged. It's very sweeping. It's historical fiction. It has some facts, some history, backstory, many generational story. But it's kind of like how how we got here. And the author in his intro, you know, he says, "Hey, I was encouraged by some friends not to publish this because I thought I would be harassed and targeted." And sure enough, he was. But he said, I feel compelled to publish it because I want to just communicate to people in the policing industry, like just where things are at right now. And that these patterns of rights violations are not acceptable. And so in that story, you know, there's just individuals who they maybe individually or with a small group, they sort of push back against um, known tyrants. And so I'm not... I mean, that maybe we'll see that. I mean, I hope that things are, I hope that for a peaceful evolution, I really, you know, I do strive, I do want to emphasize, like, I, I don't think the term revolution is something that we should get behind because it's, it's just revolving around a hub of authority. It's just replacing one regime head for another regime head or one regime type for another regime type. But instead we need to evolve and get past these uh, where it's normal to have institutions based on violence and to have two classes of people, the rulers and the ruled or the parasitic class and, and the workers. So I think, I think um, it's, it's, I try to entertain as many ideas, you know, I, I want to, I don't want to be dogmatic. And so anyone I meet on the street, if they seem, you know, open to have a conversation, I want to hear where they're from, what they're about, or what motivates them and stuff, and just try to get a better sense of things. So that's, that's one reason I just want to um, mention this uh, tactic that may not have you know, been brought up too often in these conversations. Yeah. You know, Pete, I remember you saying something along the same lines as far as um, not striving for revolution, but striving for evolution. And it's something that's always stuck with me. And I've always been mindful as how I approach that subject and the words that I use when speaking on it. I did actually watch that video you were referring to earlier in the conversation about uh, you being uh, caged and, and kidnapped by costume police employees because you're wearing a hat. And yeah, damn, those guys were pretty brutal with you, man. As far as what you said is about the the, the change due to you know all the the current activism, and I think you're I think you're right about that, Pete. I know our previous guest James Freeman. He, he did mention on the podcast that 
he thinks that there has been a significant shift. I suppose it's hard to kind of tell when you're in our shoes. You know, me and Matt, we're, we're looking at these stories constantly. We're a bit in the weeds here, you know, so we might not have that ability to zoom out in the same sense that other people who are maybe looking at it from a surface level can. And I think in this type of work, again, it's it's hard to really quantify these types of things. You know, I like that point you made about the recruitment for police employees being very low. And I think you're right about that, Pete. I think that's a wonderful point to highlight and a statistic to kind of point out because that is a great indicator that things aren't going so well for these institutions. Also, you had mentioned, you know, I remember Coplock did have that welcome Leo section. You've always been really good about humanizing the police and not playing into that divide of the us versus them. It's something I really appreciate about you. And we've had at least two uh, former police officers on this podcast. In fact, we are friends with them. We talk to them regularly. In fact, we're writing a book with one of them right now, uh, which is almost in the, the final stages about teaching kids their rights. But um, I, I lied. I said that that was going to be the last question about the police accountability movement. I do have one more. And I feel like this one's significant because we always try to talk about solutions at the end of the podcast. And, you know, we're not quite at the end of the podcast yet. We're, we're getting close, but I did kind of want to get your take on this. And I know, as I've said throughout this podcast, you've, you've kind of evolved with your work in this movement. But in 2012, you did an extremely powerful interview with Dale Brown while on the Cop Lock tour. And you highlighted Dale's Threat Management Center in Detroit. Of course, since then, I guess you could say Dale's public persona has shifted a bit and he's now a TikTok star and he's viral on Instagram. But at one point, he was dedicated to his private security and protection company that had provided stellar results to customers and communities that sought out his services. As someone who spent six, six weeks in South Africa, as you mentioned, and saw private security companies in real world circumstances... And as someone who understands, you know, the depths of police violence in America and somebody who's also had a knee on his neck while being arrested during that that arrest we were just talking about for wearing a hat. Do you still view the community funded, voluntarily consented protection and security firms as being the only logical and feasible solution to the police violence epidemic or I mean, I know we've talked about a few things now, but is it more of like a multifaceted problem that requires more, a variety of triage of solutions? Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, um, yeah, certainly the, the sort of private security does have a role. And again, if there's a market demand, then that will uh, happen uh, in more, it'd be, be more numerous, have more options for people. Um, I would say that you know, what, what exists today? I mean, some people might say, oh, like the state or the government or the police, whatever, they're like so out of control, but like it only exists because there's a market demand. And I, and I don't like to, I mean, it's kind of uh, maybe counterintuitive to say that, but it just speaks to the level of conditioning and the amount of, um, you know, deferment again to like so-claimed authorities. And if you think about like, this probably isn't anything new for you guys, but like the the root of authorities is author. These folks want to control the narrative. They want to, they want to say what happened or didn't happen. They want to say who's in the right, who's in the wrong. So like even using their nomenclature get, empowers them. So um, I do think that, uh, that as, yeah, there's a market demand for it. There'll, there'll be more, um, more realization of that. I would say that, yeah, while most police employees 
don't ever fire their, you know, I heard, I heard you Jason on a recent podcast say, you know, about a thousand people in the USSA are killed by police every year. And, um, you know, that said, that's true. But, uh, you know, I don't know what there are 700,000 police employees and the majority of them over the course of their uh, career, like do not fire their firearm. Um, but I would say that most every police employee has witnessed or at least taken part in themselves or at least witnessed a colleague, you know, act in a way that, that, you know, they wouldn't be proud of if it, if it became known. And so there's just like this, um, very deep tribalism in policing and, and, you know, it's like uh, very segregated from non-police. They tend to, you know, only hang out with other police employees. They tend to only go to social functions with police employees. And so it is, I know it is a very tough uphill battle, but again, I do think like if, if we think of these institutions and these like out of control politicians and folks behind the scenes and, you know, who say, Oh, I can control your life in this way or that way. Like at the end of the day, like uh, if, if they don't have people enforcing what they say, again, these order followers, then they lose their clout. And so the te- the uh, police are essentially like the teeth of this bad idea of the state or whatever you want to say. So I think if uh, another organization we haven't touched on is called the Thick Red Line, and they, they try to reach out to police employees and encourage them to sort of take a pledge like that to um, not do anything that violates natural law. And so while that may make sense to you know, you or me, I do think maybe focusing on natural law is a bit, um, bit of a stretch, but it could be phrased in some other ways. But anyway, I, I don't want to um, belittle that at all. I do think it's, again, worth reaching out to current police employees because uh, if there's whistleblowers, if there's folks who, who leak information, if they kind of slow things down, if they know that, hey, this person's going to get raided and they, they've done nothing to hurt anybody, it's just like, they didn't obey or whatever, and they sort of somehow give them a heads up. You know, these kind of things can go a long way uh, to lessen their, their their reach. And I do think that if and when there's more market demand for alternatives to police, then like this quote unquote good police employees, the ones who have integrity. Um, like when I when I was an intern at St. Paul Police back in the day, there was definitely a difference between you know one guy who I'd walk downtown beat with, and everyone knew him. And they were friendly with him. And I knew that, hey, if something really went down, these folks would look out for this guy. Whereas whereas a, a week later, I'm I'm riding with someone else through like more of a rougher neighborhood. And he's just like shining his uh, lights on everyone, using his siren, talking to people kind of gruffly over the PA. And I'm like, man, this guy is like, you know, he's in like a fishbowl and he thinks he's, you know, above everyone. And that's not the way to treat people. And um so, so I do hope that there is more of a market demand. Again, I think it comes down to just uh, seeing through the conditioning to for lifting that veil, um, and and to not uh, give these folks any clout over you or authority. Um, but, but again, yeah, good holistic conversations can be had in in like a non-threatening way and in, in, in downtime. And I think it's it's worth doing. I mean, hopefully, I, I would think some of our listeners, some of your listeners, have you know family members in that industry and. And uh, I, I had a police employee one time when we were getting caged in in Massachusetts, and and we were it was this classic like we're not really going to comply. They carried us in, and they like you know all that kind of stuff. And we're trying to tell them the whole time like, hey, who's the like who's the aggressor here? What would it be called if I did this? And and I and I was encouraging this one guy to like quit his job, and he said, you know, I I I would quit my job, but my family wouldn't understand. And I and I said, well, what's most important? Like if your family loves you, they would they would learn to understand, but ultimately like you're, you have to, 
you know, I was just encouraging him to like, um, you know, stand by his own integrity and, you know, so any, and we've had other police employees back in the day tell us they had like, they wore a cop lock shirt under their, you know, um, police outfit, you know, and, and so that was like very interesting, but, um, I do think, I do think most people are well-intentioned. Um, you know, it's just that these, where things are at is so compartmentalized. You know, there's that sci-fi movie called the cube. If y'all have seen that where, and it's like, how do we end up here? And who, who built this? And it's like, just all these people worked on various aspects and it created this hellish kind of thing. And I, and I think that the sort of velvet glove, um, style of the U S like quote unquote law enforcement legalese. It's like, it's like everyone just does a little bit and they, and they have this cognitive dissidence and they don't feel culpable, but it needs to be pointed out to them again, not in like harsh and in a way that's going to cause them not to be receptive, but you know, just maybe in a, in a leave them with a resource or ask questions and, and help them to maybe reach their own conclusions and, and maybe part, um, maybe move their own energy from being involved with that to something more productive. Sure, man. I think uh, that you have it correct with market forces here. And you, it's true. We, we have a society dependent upon being heavily policed and <clears throat> aggressed against by the state. And um, I think that there is there is a paradigm shift, though, like you had mentioned earlier. I think that uh, um, uh, that Uvalde actually in particular was a wake up call. You know, like I've never seen so many people on the right actually start to question why there's so many police and so many, you know, armed agents of the state when they didn't even do anything. And so that like that that set this thought process in motion that has a lot of people, you know, consider like thinking and um, and questioning the role of this security force that we have in this country. And um, it created a market force from the right to uh, to actually question that. And I'm I'm curious as to what you think that we could that that could happen or that we could like actually help to promote or or maybe push as a potential solution that could create more of this market force that makes people question this monopoly on the security force and and you know in this country in particular obviously not like any type of school shootings where we're watching cops stand down and children get murdered or anything like that but like what do you think could act as like an impetus to push more of the people into that realm where they would begin to question this massive this monopolistic security force that we have and try to think to create more solutions that act outside of that all right free thinkers this episode is nearing its end just a reminder we've been working extremely hard to bring you some of the most powerful voices in the truth liberty movement we work tirelessly for you to bring these concepts to the masses and to educate and wake up those who continue to sleep Please don't forget to consider donating or subscribing if you appreciate the work we do. It's becoming more and more difficult to do this, and we can no longer depend on social media advertisers of big tech monetization. Our support network is you. So help us rebuild this organization by going to our website, thefreethoughtproject.com, and at the top you'll find tabs for our memberships and donations. Also, please review and rate this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you, Freethinkers. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I don't pretend to have, you know, all the knowledge on this or, 
not an For oracle sure. or anything, but I do think, I, again, I do uh, want to stress the importance, I think, of in-person connections. Like when I used to be more on the road and, and kind of coordinate meetups and, and know your rights trainings and things like I really the, one of the, the best takeaways of all those all those years and that effort was just like knowing that when, when I left the town, just because of, you know, folks having an affinity for the for the project they decided to come out and now they had like a point of contact someone who lived like a mile away or 10 miles away or many points of contact and that was like you know they had I know, and I know many of them like developed really strong friendships and and uh, that makes a huge difference and if people can you know feel like they're not isolated and if they can have these conversations and then they they'll, they'll figure out what makes sense in their own area like they may say hey let's have a let's let's like you know rent a hall or just like meet at a park and just like flyer the hell out of town and just invite people out or get this little meme out or share this or, you know, it's got to happen like in a thought, like, um, you know, in a, in a myriad of ways and whatever, you know, people local have the best information, but I, I do think, um, yeah. And, and also, you know, if that's not, everyone's wired different, if that's not, you know, what some people are into, then just like creating like very compelling short, pieces of content that strike the root that ask questions and don't like kind of preach, I think is very important uh, just to compete with all the other like uh, uh, content that's out there these days. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so there's all the, the, the social media reach and you know, the, the content marketing and stuff is always a good solution to it. And I think another reason why they crack down <laughs> so hard mm -hmm. on it, you know, because when you, when you have that, that, that ability to change so many minds at one time, you, uh, unfortunately it puts a target on your back by the people who want to maintain their monopoly. Uh, I, I, I wish that there could be something like that, that could happen. Not, not, I'm not saying I wish for a Uvalde. I'm just wishing for like that. There's kind of like what, like the opposite of what happened with 9/11. Remember when 9/11 happened and all these people, they they came together and they were unified and they looked past race and they looked past the state and the, I mean it was this rampant nationalism, right? But um, like a, there's like some kind of unifying movement or something that could get like through to people because there's. You know, there's there's people on there's this sentiment on the left and there's a sentiment on the right. And I think there's now the sentiment in the center, too, that like it could that people could find this commonality and and we could actually, you know, put forward some solutions that would not be nearly as brutal and not hurt as many people and free people for all these victimless crimes and <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and put an end to this this craziness that we've been dealing with for so many years in this country, man. I, I, I don't know what that what that spark would be but i just uh i don't know i hope it comes soon enough yeah i agree what you just said reminds me of a previous guest y'all had i believe his name was gavin it was on your central bank digital currency episode but he said you know he thinks a lot of folks have the correct principles but just a, a skewed paradigm or something like to that effect and so mm -hmm. again i do think most folks do want to lead i think everyone has the capacity to be evil or be good you know, it's someone's not all evil or all good, but it's just what you give energy to. And so if we can, if we can create the incentives and we can encourage folks to, you know, focus on, on the positive, then we can, you know, move forward together and, and finding that common ground. And, 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 uh, yeah, as a brief mention before duty to protect me and a, a former colleague at Coplock, we had attempted another project for a few months. It was called beyond the badge. And the idea was to try to get police and police supporters and police haters to kind of have a conversation in a non you know, uh, uh, heated, 
um, forum. But, uh, you know, we didn't really stick with that too long. Again, I, I, I did feel like it was uh, kind of reactive, just kind of focused in the, on that institution still. So that's why I'm very excited about duty to protect because, it, again, it focuses just on the individual and, and uh, tries to build that up. Hell yeah, dude. I mean, this is this is the time where we uh, wrap up and we normally like ask for solutions, but I think we just devoted the last 10, 15 minutes of the podcast to actually, you know, figuring out ways that we can actually do that, man. Uh, Pete, dude, you're 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 awesome, dude. You're an inspiration. Like I remember back when Jason and I first met, uh, you know, I used to watch these YouTubes of you and and then we got to work with you at Cop Block. It was uh it was crazy. You know, we got thrust into this limelight and we were right there next to you guys working with you guys. And, um, it's really an honor to have you on our podcast, man. And, uh, hopefully we get a meet up, dude, <laughs> while you're, while you're here locally. Um, in the meantime, man, why don't you tell everybody how they can, uh, get, uh, how they can maybe not get a hold of you, but how they can follow your work and, 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 and check this right to protect out, <clears throat> um, and, and maybe help you and support your cause. Yeah, sure. I just, uh, I'm pretty off the radar these days in terms of social media, but uh, I do, if you're interested in duty to protect, it's duty to protect. I mean, duty to protect. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're good, man. You're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, duty to protect.net. And uh, I upload to Odyssey uh, is my primary platform. I also, if you use Anchor or Spotify, the the content is there as well. But I do hope to expand the website in the, in the coming months just with more resources. And again, We'll see where things go. I, I do want to get more skilled in the physical protection component myself and potentially uh, offer some training and whatnot. But, but yeah, duty to protect.net. And again, the way people can help, I would just say just uh, invest in yourself, look inward, like figure out what makes sense to you. Um, don't be, don't just obey others. Think, think for yourself. I mean, me telling someone to think for themselves is, is like, you know, I don't want them to, that's kind of, uh, but I do, I do encourage, uh, everybody to just always, always question everything and, uh, you know, try to act aligned with your conscience, with integrity, you know, as if no one was there, what would you do? Um, and, um, I, I personally have found a lot of value from, I've, you know, the past years, I've spent a lot of time just digging in all sorts of ideas, but I've personally found a lot of value from transcendentalism and from Taoism. And I, I take, I think there's a lot of overlap with anarchism and these uh concepts we've been talking about so if anyone's interested in those but hasn't yet taken a look i encourage that hell yeah man well pete thanks for thanks for coming on dude it was a, a pretty awesome podcast here and uh, i think everybody's gonna enjoy it and hopefully they can take your advice and actually do these things and make the world a better place starting with themselves yeah and uh you know we've had a lot of longtime liberty activists on our show but you have been a huge inspiration on my own work and the focus with police to police and the focus and, and work that we've done with the Freed Thought Project. And even though you've been out of limelight for a while now, your work continues to resonate and live on as you know, I, I just mentioned by motivating, inspiring and activating good people who seek accountability, transparency and legitimate change, you know, and it basically have picked up the torch that you lit. So, um, you know, I very much appreciate your work. You continue to evolve, improve yourself and seek knowledge as an activist and a truth teller. And I have the utmost respect for your new podcast and the approach that it's taking. So uh, thank you for being a light in the darkness. And thank you for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Jason. And thanks, Matt. And again, thanks for all y'all do. You guys are like what 
Friedrich Hayek calls the secondhand dealers of information. Just you're in a position where you're able to spread ideas and inform folks and encourage them to, you know, chew on things, and it and it uh, it makes a difference. So thanks, thanks for that. Right on. Buddy.